Hello and welcome back to the Flagle Skulls podcast. I'm Joe. Today I'm joined by Casper, uh, right next to me. Hello, guys. We also have uh, Jürgen, our resident uh, fact checker. Hey. And today we have a special guest in uh, Thomas Perinen, who will be joining us to answer a few questions about 5th edition, 6th edition, Mordheim, etc. And his time th- that he worked in, in Games Workshop as well. All right. Well, uh, Thomas, would you like to uh, start off by taking a couple of minutes to talk about your career in board gaming? Sure. My career started at the ripe old age of six when the first board game that I designed was published in one of the local magazines in Finland. Uh, And it really, that's the, the, the path set by a lot of games designers like we tend to be people who it's innate in us that we want to design games. I was always, when I turned 12, I was the dungeon master in our D&D group. It's the, the, when I discovered Warhammer, I was the guy who ran the campaigns and the, the, wrote the, the, the scenarios and get people together. And then when the internet started, of course, there was once upon a time, a time when, for example, when you wanted to read any mails it took several hours to download all the emails you wanted to read so i was part of the direwolf group of warhammer fantasy battle and started writing army list scenarios campaigns and the the tactics article for the fourth edition that became very 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 popular in fact so popular that jervis johnson is the one of the most iconic game designers at games workshop read them and games workshop decided to send me a plane ticket for an interview and the the they talked to me, liked me so much that they offered me a job and the, the, the rest of the say is, is history and I'll just go quickly through it. So initially they were planning to get me involved in the Citadel Journal, it's the, the, which was the, the sort of the uh, precursor to the fanatic press at that point. But the fat bloke who eventually became the uh, White Wolf editor said that no, you, uh, your talents are better used at the studio. So I joined the White Dwarf team for a, a, I'm a, around eight, nine months, because that's something at that point which I thought was very good. All the game designers in, 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 in Games Workshop went through White Dwarf first, so they'd learn about writing quickly, writing the, the uh, good enough English that a decent editor can turn it into a, a, a well-reading and flowing articles. Um, to learn about the, the, all the aspects of the hobby, not just the gaming or miniatures or the, the, the rules or the background, but to sort of give you a well-rounded rounded tool box. And it actually, we had a little game with a fourth edition box uh, the, the, that the, the, where I had the rest of the studio just draw any of the cards and either tell me its uh, points value and type, and I would tell you what item it was I had at that point managed to memorize everything in the fourth edition. I was so into it. And when Rick Priestley, who is obviously the, the, the most important designer in Games Workshop history, the creator of the original Warhammer and 40k, saw that, he just said, yep, we're moving you to game design. Um, and at games design, it's the I worked first with the Jervis, Nigel Stillman and Andy Chambers and others on the Warhammer uh, army books. I did on fourth edition. It's the the which then the, the the at that point fifth edition had just come out, and the I worked on the little bit on the Bretonian book. I did a lot of work for the Dogs of War book. I did a um, fair bit of work on the the uh, on the other book, sort of and the, the the little by little, and then I took over more and more of the full game designer uh, duties. It's the I wrote the Warhammer Armies. Uh, High Elves, the the fifth edition book, it's the and the Vampire Counts, um, and of course like cabillion battle reports and articles for White Wolf as we went. Like in Games Workshop, your pace when you're making stuff is very very fast. You are producing stuff for release all the time, and then I did the Siege Rules for Warhammer fifth edition, and then of course the Realm of Chaos box, which started my my full cooperation with the uh, John Blanche, the, the Games Workshop's art director, which then eventually became Mordheim, which was the, the fifth edition supporting Warhammer 
skirmish uh, game, so the uh, which obviously still has an incredibly strong following. The original rule set, like I am stunned every day when I see the staggering number of people who still play it and and how active the community is. And then I was promoted to be the head of design for Warhammer and uh, creating Warhammer Sixth Edition. Uh, uh, the, the, and rebalancing all the army lists fell upon me, and that's probably out of the Games Workshop games, the one that the people remember me best by. It's the Mordheim Warhammer 6th edition, it's very strong following still. And I did do also work on the, the helping the, the guys on the 40k side as well. It's the, the playtesting, suggesting rules, writing fiction and so on and so forth. And I'm obviously like, uh, me and Jervis, we started the grand tournaments, like the initial grand tournaments. Games Workshop originally was not very keen on them, but the me and Jervis really got that going because we believe that even though it's not a money generator, it's something that uh, builds the hobby and gives the, 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 the sort of the super enthusiastic Warhammer players and 40k players a chance to connect and the, the uh, build the international community. So that's, I'm, and I'm leaving tons of stuff out, but that's in a nutshell what I did. Lots of stuff, like a bunch of campaign boxes I did as well. It's the, the but this, this is how it goes. Definitely an illustrious career there in, uh, in uh, Games Workshop. But um, what about after Games Workshop? Um, I know you, you left there for, uh, at some point, so what was the uh, reason behind uh, leaving Games Workshop? Oh, taking care of my family, to be brutally blunt at that point, even on a position that was pretty decent. It's the Games Workshop just wasn't paying that much to uh, their game designers, and I wanted to own a house and start a family and take care of the, the, the people around me. And video games industry just pays so much better. It was a painful but rational choice at that point. Nowadays things in Games Workshop are, by the way, much better. So if anybody wants to slag them off, it's the, the, that's no longer a case. The, the, they have moved into a much better position in the, the key, key, key employee compensation. But it was still a very much, at that point, even though it was already a quite a big company, it still had a lot of the legacy of being a tinky little corner shop where they, they had three employees and a cat, and the, the every paycheck was a major struggle to, to uh, do. So uh, luckily that's changed. But yeah, I do love video games, and I've, like, I've designed now video games professionally for 15, 16, 17 years. So the, the, it's not like I felt I'm, I've been left out. It's game design is still my passion. But at that point, it wasn't really a dissatisfaction with my job, which I loved and which I'm very proud of, but more sort of practicalities of a, of a the, the being able to provide. Yeah, okay, very interesting. Um... So uh, what was the difference between working at Games Workshop and uh, working at the modern companies today? Oh, it really, you know, it depends. I worked for Electronic Arts, Ubisoft, Capcom, um, Microsoft Game Studios, lots of indie studios, Remedy here in Finland, started a couple of my own companies. Uh, the question really is, is Games Workshop versus everything else? It is the Games Workshop versus particular company, like Electronic Arts is a gigantic multinational, multi-multi-billion conglomerate where things are done in a absolutely massive scale and the, when you need something done like hey, let's sign up the Real Madrid for the FIFA game you have an organization that has the cloud and the funds to pull something humongous off like I was working on Need for Speed for EA. Let's raffle a Audi R8 and Lamborghini between all the players as a, a, a prize. This is the kind of stuff that the even a tabletop game company that's even if it's doing very well just just can't do. It just doesn't have the scale and the funds. So that's very different. But then I, I really like a small startup companies that I work for as well, where it's just you of other guys and creativity and you get to challenge all the big dogs by being super nimble and creative as opposed to having tons and tons of money because modern video games on the AAA space the consoles cost so much money to make 
that is just terrifying. It's the, absolutely terrifying. So the, the I think the Compare Games Workshop is a very well-to-do and probably the most, uh, alongside with Wizard of the Coast, it's the cornerstone of the tabletop gaming companies, but it's still on a scale-wise, it just can't compare to the behemoths of the video game industry. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, regret anything from the time on Games Workshop? Oh, I mean, apart from getting too drunk sometimes in the Bugman's bar, it's the... No, professionally, no. I am super proud of everything I did. There are mistakes in the work I did, for sure. Uh, but that goes with the territory. It's perfect design never exists, especially in a games like Warhammer 40k, Mordheim, Necromunda, where in order for them to be creative and exciting and fun and endlessly replayable, they cannot be as rigid as chess is, because otherwise the game becomes too enclosed. It's the the uh, it, the roots of the uh, tabletop gaming, like Warhammer, are in RPGs. Indeed, D and D was based on a miniatures wargaming set, it, not the other way around. But they share a lot in common. And I think that if the, we could have a perfectly balanced game, if it was same Space Marines versus same Space Marines, you don't get to choose any of the army lists, you have all the same models, everybody moves the same way, the, the field is always the same. You would have perfect balance, but you'd lose out what it is. But no, I have no regrets, except I would have, wish I could have done more still. It's the I love tabletop design. Um, you have already talked about uh, working at the Games Workshop before uh, the internet was really a thing. Um, can you elaborate a, a little bit how it was to work uh, without the, the, the swift communication? Well, for example, the fans wrote letters to you, often with a very bad handwriting. And since you didn't get these factions that you get nowadays in the communities forming, that the people come up with a consensus. You got like people's ideas and thoughts and, and the, the complaints all over the place because there was no echo chamber of the internet. So it's really it was really fascinating. It's the, the like every little gaming group or a gamer was a, a little island in the middle of nothingness. It's the and yeah communication was much slower. And the, the, there was a certain excitement, like, for example, when a new box set or book came from printers, uh, you didn't get an email telling it's ready or seeing its scans beforehand. You send it off and then there was this exciting period of anticipation. And then you get the brand new book smelling fresh and you see it every all for the first time. All your work that's disappeared into the ether coming out as a real product. like, uh, And there was like the... the uh, the Mordheim's plastic set was really a trailblazing set. That was the first true modern multi-part plastic set for the Games Workshop. Uh, and the way that had to be done, that the, the figures had to be three times their real size, because the technology of the scanning wasn't that that the, the far off yet. And that was done in, it wasn't designed in computers. It was, all the sculpting was by hand. Um, it's the, the, I saw the transition also to internet age and we gained a lot, like efficiency, speed, the, the quality of printing, more colors. But I think we lost a little bit of that craftsmanship and the, the sort of the, the feeling that this is an artisan work. And I don't think it's necessarily good or bad thing. It's, it's, it's part of the flow of time. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. Um, now, uh, Jürgen, do you have any, uh extra questions for this introduction uh, no uh, not really uh, I just uh, I'm a bit uh, curious um, you wrote a lot of uh, tactics articles with the direwolf fact and um, was it uh, this that uh, led to the job interview or was it something else you wrote it was that and the Kislev army list, it's the, the, which Jervis Johnson really liked. Now, the, it, I never knew it because the, the, I didn't have a... I, in order for me to even read the Direwolf group, I had to go to my friend's house because I didn't have a computer. 
So I wrote them there, they disappeared in the ether, but now I get, I still get people coming with printed copies of that asking for signature. So it seems that on the hardcore fan base, it was always a really big thing. And of course, uh, Jervis really, really was impressed by it. It's the, the, and he has an excellent eye for talent. He always had. It's the, the, what, a, what a tremendous designer Jervis is. I mean, hell, he designed Blood Bowl. It's the, 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 the what more can you say? Um, the, um, the, the, but yes, it was a big part. I was a big tournament player at that point as well. So you have to then, if you win, want to win competitive tournaments, you really need to know your army list and tactics, not only of your army, but all your opponents. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I guess we'll move on to talking a little bit about the uh, Flail of Skulls podcast now. Now, um, we started out about a year and a half ago when the restrictions began. And then um, we just started playing with the. Uh, at first, we started with the uh, cardboard cutouts using as the models. But essentially, over the last year and a half, we basically con collected all the armies to fifth edition uh, Warhammer. Uh, and of course, we named ourselves the Flail Skull Podcast because we consider that the most math hammer uh, item in that uh, edition. Uh, so in that spirit, we have uh, prepared uh, 10 quick questions. Uh, this will be mainly concerning 5th edition, if you have any, uh, I don't know how much you recollect from, from that time. You might have to remind me of some of the, the rules. I'm, I remember a fair bit what I wrote, but yes, I remember Flail of Skulls, my, 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 my tomb, uh, mummy tomb king, king always had it. Well, uh, first off, is just uh, what is your favorite faction in, in fifth edition, and perhaps if you could get a few words on why. Oh, high elves always, and it's just Goodwin's models like the the army. I I was a big fan of Tolkien, uh, as probably vast majority of fantasy fans, and the 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 Eldar, the high elves. It's the 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 Noldorin armies yeah. in Silmarillion really spoke to me, and the seeing that in three D, like the white uh, cloaks, the awesome history that Bill King uh, wrote for them. Oh, Bill is such a character as well. Uh, it's the, the, I always loved it. The only thing that frustrated me was that objectively, the, the first version of the fourth edition rules, high elves were very weak list. They were one of the first ones. But then I got a chance to rewrite the book for the, for the fifth edition, so the, the, I could fix it. Good idea. And you did a really good job on that. I think the four, uh, fifth edition High Elf book is, uh, um, has a lot more flavor and has a lot more interesting in terms of tactics than the fourth. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fourth, uh, fourth edition High Elf list, apart from stunning art and tremendous background, it was very prototypey kind of list when the, the, the Games Workshop wasn't really yet quite ready to uh, know how they should do the army books, how to take them, how far to take them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, is there any one of the army lists that you just did, did not like to face on the battlefield? So basically your least favorite faction. Um, the, before I did Realm of Chaos, I was always disappointed that when I played Chaos, there was all this potential, all this cool stuff with beastmen and demons, and it was always the same block of Chaos Knights and and the, the, the Chaos Lords on dragons, and it was like this tiny little army that basically it all came to down to that. The, the, did I manage to destroy it from distance, or did it kill my entire army, and it made it boring, which is one of the reasons why I was so keen to write the Realm of Chaos box set. Uh, I love Chaos, I just didn't think the army list, because it tried to have everything in one list, it ended up having nothing. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, what would you consider the strongest, and uh, what would you consider the worst factions in 5th edition? Um, dwarves struggled a lot in tournaments, because in Warhammer Speed Kills, they were, if you were playing a defensive scenario where they can play to their strengths, is that, that would be fine. But Warhammer rules inherently favor aggressive play style. Mm -hmm. it's the, the moving forward, taking ground, it's the denying the opponent space, and dwarves are supremely bad at that. Supreme, uh, dwarves are supremely good at waiting for you to come to them, just have a withering fire coming in, and then you crashing upon their 
the, the, the super heavy infantry, but that's not how you win games of Warhammer, even though it's very much in character with, uh, of dwarves. So they always traveled. Uh, the the uh, Skaven played well, were tremendously powerful, like very underrated, and the Wood Elves were super strong. Uh, and I think that once the I get my hands on the Realm of Chaos, it's the 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 it became highly, 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 highly competitive. Uh, but if I'd have to pick one on fifth edition alone, one army list that most consistently you could win with, it was fully kitted out, cheesed out Bretonia. Oh, not lizard man? No, no, it's the the, there are so many, if you look at the rules like the, the, the Knight's Wedge, how difficult it is to do anything to it if the player is willing to play well and is willing to sort of the, the bend the edges of the rules. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to stop them. It's the, uh, they have almost perfect balance. And again, I was a head chief umpire in tons of grand tournaments, and I tell you, Bretonnia won a lot. Okay, okay. Now, um, what if there is one, what would your favorite special character in 5th edition be? Um, if I go with the, the... I would give you two. One that I made and then one from somebody else. Um, of my own, it's the... Um, I think that Archaean closely followed by Neferata. It's the Archaean because he became such a pivotal part of the history and he became so immensely popular. Like the, the, the uh, I was really disappointed with the, that there wasn't like this, the, the equivalent of Tyrion for the Chaos. So when I did the Champions of Chaos books, I wanted to create the ultimate Chaos Warlord. And John Blanche was really into it. So the, the, that's how Archaean came about. And the I think he wins by by sheer impact. But I also like the the introducing Lamian sisterhood and Neferata, the the queen of mysteries, the first vampire. It's the the cause. It, I didn't design it that way, uh, but it's really nice that I managed to interject some very very uh, impactful female characters into the Warhammer lore. Of the special characters, other people have done. It's the the. Um, Lord Schnicht, the, the, the Grand Assassin, like just so flavorful. Oh, yeah. uh, just awesome character, like so... Uh, Andy Chambers captured the essence of a Skaven Assassin perfectly with him. Definitely agree on that one. All right, um, is there a unit uh, in 5th edition that you uh, absolutely love despite knowing it's not particularly good? Oh, the Dragon Princess of Caledor is just way too expensive, even with all the changes I did to it. But <laughs> I still always feel it then because I really I like the background, their arrogance that when the, the before the battle, all the rest of the High Elf army dips their flags and spears in front of the Phoenix King standard, but there is this arrogant bunch of bastards who won't do it. That they are so prideful and so arrogant. It's the, the I love the image of them, but they are not like a tournament-winning unit. Really? You don't think that uh, Dragon Princess with the battle banner is uh, quite strong? They are quite strong, but not worth the points. It's the, the, that's, that's my... And again, remember, I was a tournament player. If you and me were playing a friendly-ish game now, I would definitely pick them. But if I'd had to win the grand tournament, my life depended on them. It's the, in Warhammer, in general, it's better to have as much bang for your buck as possible. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we definitely uh, enjoy using uh, Dragon Princess uh, quite a lot in our builds, and we try to, to play uh, as much tournament games as possible. Yeah. It might be that it's partly because the Grand Tournaments had a very specific setup, and my my thoughts on what's competitive is molded by that, and high point cost value units were not the the ideal because we penalized them quite a bit. It's the 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 in the, the, the way that the, the point system worked. So it might also be that our difference in what we consider a competitive tournament might vary a little bit. Okay, okay, yeah, definitely. 
All right. Um, well, is there a magic item in fifth edition that you uh, uh, absolutely uh, love? Crown of, Crown of Command, like both as the, the giving, making one unit, even in a sort of more cowardly armies, um, the, the, the almost invulnerable to breakage, giving a very good protection against psychology, helping armies, like if you give it to your, say, a, a, a goblin general, it's the, the, you can suddenly become so much more resistant to the, to the, the uh, psychology with its range combined with the general's leadership. It, it has a huge, this combined uh, the, the synergy effect. I think it's the, the, for a strategically minded general like me, it's the, I love it above all else. There are obviously items that are way better at killing things, but the, the, uh, I don't think those have quite the universal applicability as the, the having an unmodifiable leadership 10. Okay. What about the uh, Black Gem of Na? Uh, do you feel that was uh, necessary or was that uh, too, you know, to balance the game or what it may be perhaps a bit too annoying sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it was because the fifth edition wanted to allow people to have a lot of flexibility in creating their characters, which ended up that we had these obscene character builds that no unit could fight against, which isn't really what Warhammer is about, that the, the, your army is a, 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 an afterthought, and it's only about that key model. So I think Jervis created the Black Gem of Nar to balance that out. But of course, it's a, it's a negative magic item. It takes things away from the game rather than adding to it. So it removes the characters. So um, we did modify it in the tournament rules, wherever it's either allowed or how much it costs. But there was, it was a well-intentioned way to fix a problem that really you couldn't go and change the core rules. I had to do that in the sixth edition, so Black Gem of Nar was no longer needed. I really think that uh, the Black Gem of Nar is a, a good item in terms of balancing the game. Um, if if you're not playing a friendly game, then I think uh, that item is just, is very much needed for a lot of factions that just would lose their general very easily to a. Uh, uh, very build a powerful character uh, without having black gem to protect them. You are absolutely right. Like I said, the, the, it does exactly what it says. It just isn't very fun for the excitement of the game. Like anything that takes away stuff from the players to do, rather than adds things you can do, it's, it's never the cleanest design. I am completely with you that there was very good reasons to introduce it. And it was like the, the especially for the older armies who didn't have the over-the-top characters, uh, it was vital. Uh, but I think the right way to fix it was to 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 not to have the power discrepancy between characters and the uh, the the, the uh, uh, units to be quite as great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Now you uh, did uh, keep. The, the black gem for sixth edition, but uh, very nerfed. Very nerfed, uh, and it was no longer needed in the same way because you simply the st stats of the heroes, while still formidable, were were not so insane. And once I added the outnumbered rules and everything else, it's the, the size into to to into equation. It's the the uh, units could have some hope against a powerful character, which they, in 5th edition, if you if you were nasty enough, you had your Savage Orc, the, the Warlord on the boar, it's the Frenzied with extra attacks, it's the, that just became a slaughter. Flail of Skulls on a Savage Orc Warboss, we all know what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, is there a, a favorite bit of lore, Trivia, from the 5th uh, edition that you uh, absolutely love? Oh, it's the, 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 the build, old Bill King stuff in Dwarf Book and especially the High Elf Book. Like he, he's a very, I mean, I love his books. I have all the, the Gotrek and Felix books signed by him. It's the, the because obviously we work together. But he, I think he was even better at the lore creation. It's the... the uh, I think the high elf histories are as good as any stuff 
aside from Tolkien, that anybody's ever created as a sort of fictional background. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, um, if you were to uh, represent yourself with a model in 5th edition, what model would that be? Uh, do you mean me as the, the, the Finnish games designer, or who I'd like to be, or who I'd like identified with? It's uh, whichever you uh, prefer there. Well, I'll answer both. It's the the I uh, I obviously I, I aspired to be Turion, the, the champion of the Ever Queen. It's the, <laughs> uh, but that's not the reality. I think on fifth edition, it's the maybe I made for the Dogs of War. It's the the uh, I made the the Priest of Sigma that travels with the Witch Hunter Wilhelm van Hal, who has the jawbone of an ox on a staff. The, maybe that's me. The, I, I like the idea of hitting people on the head with a jawbone. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, what would your favorite edition of Warhammer be? Well, I have to say sixth because yeah. I wrote it. I mean, I put 18 years of my life. I devoted fully to that, and I don't. I don't think I can. I can sort of set that aside. But I also have to say that the I got into Warhammer on third edition, and fourth edition sold it to me. So emotional attachment-wise, it's fourth. But the me most meaningful edition for me has to be sixth. Of course, of course, makes sense. All right. Um, is there a game other than Warhammer that you would consider among your favorites? Uh, on tabletop. Yes. Uh, yes. The the. Uh, the Bell's Multitudes, it's the, I like that one, it's the, the uh, I played uh, Napoleonics as well a lot with the Perrys. Um, the, the, I like the, the, the Star Wars, the, the, what it's called with the, with the uh, spaceships, my, my memory. X-Wing. X-Wing, X-Wing, yes. It's the, I really enjoyed every game I played, I, uh, that, I think it has a very beautiful and elegant design. Um, the the uh, uh, what else? Because I've played quite a bit of historicals, especially lately. But now I think those are those are the ones that stick to my the DBM and, and the, the X Wing. I think you can put those down. Okay, thank you. Um, now we're gonna move uh, over to some bad reports and White Wolf questions. Um, the first one I have for you is uh, you always tend to have the uh, the upper hand, I think, in uh, terms of list building in uh, those battle reports in the White Wolf. Um, is that uh, something that you also felt like that you had, or? Yes, and I was. It was kind of expected of me. Like I won the the one of the the uh, staff championship games. It's the the. Uh, at Games Workshop, so there was an expectation, and I was very much expected to kick the wheels and try to, like, to push the army list so the the uh, that we could see where the breakages are, uh, and it's kind of like the readers came to expect that I put a lot of efforts because we got a lot of posts telling that the oh the game designers can't build decent army lists they always rubbish the the we I, we could do so much better often this had to do with the other things because remember we had to use the heavy metal armies so we very often had to make sub optimal choices because we just didn't have the models i mean of course we had all the models in the world but we couldn't show in white dwarf anything except professionally painted models um but the and also like Andy Chambers uh, and actually Jervis as well, they are quite capable of being ruthless and brutal if they wish. They just don't want to do it all that often. Um, Nigel with Stillmania was always about pure background and flavor and never about the the effic- effectiveness of the army. So I was just another kind of player thrown in the mix. So there would be a variety and it was missing at that point in White Wolf. Very few people wanted to be called Beardy and do a, a, a punishing armies and the, the uh, I enjoyed it it's the, and I did it and the, the, I think it for some fans it was something that they enjoyed seeing and it gave maybe Games Workshop a bit of credibility that yeah we know how we could build we have people who know how to who could build 
pretty competitive armies. It's not that we don't know how to do it. So I think it balanced it out. Yeah. Um, then in terms of uh, of balancing, uh, the fifth edition you came out with a White Dwarf 222, where several items were were nerfed, mm. um, and it really uh, shifted the the game a lot and uh, made the game uh, more balanced because there were some really powerful combinations there. But were there any other items that you had uh, up for debate that uh, didn't make the cut for being nerfed? Oh yes, I mean everything to do with multi-attacks was on the table because it's really charge, multi-attack and then pile on any 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 bonuses on top of that was the surest way to win the game. Uh, but at the end of the day uh, it was not a good idea to completely shift the meta because nowadays it's quite easy for a games company to completely change their game because internet you just everybody will know that the other rules have changed and this, these are the new rules but at that point we had a we had to be very careful because not everybody not even nearly everybody who played Warhammer got white dwarf and the the uh, even if they did we could still the, the make a mistake or something could not be explained clearly enough so it wasn't as easy to shift meta at that point as it is today and you had to be a lot more careful with it because you don't want to end up in a situation where one guy comes to play with a white wolf 225 with changes and then the other guy has never heard about it and that's super unfair for one of them yeah that is also the case on the uh, community side that we are members of uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, Warhammer 222 uh, had these changes um, still today. So I definitely uh, take you up on that and uh, agree on that. Um, taking on to the next question, um, what's your favorite uh, memories uh, from being a part of the White Wolf team? Uh, it has to be with the White Wolf 200 and the birthday cake and the Wayne England painting the 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 uh, uh, white wolf cover. It's the um, we had a we had a um, Ian Pickstock as the Gav me the the uh, Jake Thornton. It's the Grand Warlord Wood. It's we had a very good, yeah Stephen Stasso. We had a very good thing going. It's the, there was some real comradeship there, and I I always remember that. I remember when we did the photo shoot where we tried to stop Adrian from eating the cake alone. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, of course, in the end, much. we sold in White Wolf. Um, yeah. Jürgen has the next uh, headline. Yeah, going back to 5th edition Warhammer, uh, you talked about it a bit, but uh, what were your main concerns with 5th edition, which uh, later on, when designing 6th edition, you changed? Uh, it really was the how can we uh, the, the both keep coming up with new releases all the time and maintain some semblance of balance. It's because people want new and exciting things and new options and we come up with new ideas and new models and the, the but at the same time and we want people to get into those new armies but at the same time it's so easy in a game of Warhammer with one bad design decision to completely break the game's balance in competitive play uh, and yeah a lot of people understand that okay we shouldn't use that it's too powerful but you as a designer should avoid creating unbalances like that and that's why we did the for the sixth edition the ravening hordes so there was at least one set of army lists that were created at one go so it gave us the very best possible chance of balancing everything uh, at the same time. That's one of the big problems when you're working on army list is that the, you are working on a game where the previous army list could be created four years before and a lot of things will have changed by that point in the game. Okay, yeah, we got, we're going to get back to 6th edition later on. Yeah. Um, a little bit, you um, designed the Realm of Chaos book. Yes. And you uh, you mentioned briefly that you split chaos. Yeah. Uh, would you like to go more into why? Yeah, it's the well the 
main reason was that the, all the chaos armies in the games used to be the same. It was a couple of chaos knights and the uberlords, uh, and that was rubbish. So we split the army in three because we felt that the, every one of those armies had a huge potential and really strong flavor, and we could still mix them together. And we wanted it to reflect the nature of chaos, which is not about a kingdom coming up with an army, but powerful individual warlords and the, uh, uh, coming together and bringing warbands with them, forming this mishmash of chaotic monstrosity. Um, so the beastmen, uh, demons, and the, the chaos warriors were each given their own list. And the, the way that you pick armies was completely changed. Uh, and there was first a lot of uh, uproar, but on the flip side, uh, that became the best-selling book on 5th edition. So uh, we must have done something right. Yeah, indeed. Um, continuing on this, um, you took away Chaos Centaurs completely. Why? Uh, no, I didn't. I put them with the uh, Beastmen, surely, it's the, didn't I? Uh, not in the 5th edition book. Oh, the, then uh, it was probably then about models. Now, one thing you have to remember that the, especially with Warhammer range, we always struggled that we had all these our own shops, but there is a very limited amount of shelf space. And Chaos List was one of those that had so many is the, the models that the, the Alan Merritt, who was in charge of the, the list, just tell us, sorry, you can't have 50 different types of units because we don't have room in the shop. So if I took the centers away, it's the, the, it would have been uh, because of the, the, um, that the model, there were not going to be models to support them. That's the only reason I would have ever taken them away. Okay. Um, did you participate in any grand tournaments yourself? No, I mean, it was forbidden from the GW staff. Uh, we had our own internal tournaments. Uh, I mean, it would have been really bad for the community if somebody from GW got the top prize. It had to go to the fans. Uh, also, like, the, the, the umpires would have been your workmates. So if you win, everybody would just say, oh, the judges were on their side. So no, it was forbidden and for a very good reason. Okay, okay. So, uh, did you participate in the staff tournaments then? Oh yes, I did. Yeah, and how did it go? And with uh, uh, which army did you use? I used high elves on both, and the, I won one of the tournaments. And the one I was on the mid ranks, I had a very tough game in the mid game. It's the and this happens, but that was fine. I I enjoyed it a lot. It's the the. Uh, Luck or the foil arm, you know, if you build your army to mobility and then you run into the wood elves, so you have a, lots of fast movement, light armor troops, and then you play against a very shooty wood elf army, then you're screwed. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so, um, another question. Um, we're going back to the White Dwarf uh, changes, and uh, mm -hmm. there was the Sword of Destruction, mm -hmm. which is a very powerful item. Mm -hmm. It was nerfed to not be allowed with uh, chaos rewards, mm. which I totally understand. Yeah. Later on, you did uh, the vampire counts list. Mm. Uh, would you say that it would be allowed to use vampiric powers with that item? I mean, strictly by a raw, yes, but I would say they should be treated the same as the chaos rewards. I mean, the whole point of it was that the sort of destruction, the whole point is that you can't have any other stacking with it, because it's the, your opponent can't have it, it's not very fair. So I would house rule it that it would also negate the vampiric, the, the bloodline talents, but as rules as are written, no, of course I did not feed, I, we did not uh, the, the, the detail them, it's the, the, and it's again grossly unfair if the other player cannot work from the same rule set it's the, the so that would go into house rules then. Yeah, I completely agree. Caspar? Mm. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, some quick uh, question, some quick question about the uh, Chaos Dwarves for you and yep. simply it's because uh, the faction pretty much died when uh, when you left. Yep. Um, 
you seemed that you were the only one that had uh, any love for the Chaos Dwarfs. Was that yep. just uh, because of uh, of sales, or was there anything else that impacted that? It was sales, like a designer with a lot of passion arguing with the management that I believe in this army. Yeah, it's last time didn't work, but the, I have all these ideas that we can make them model super cool and it will sell super well. Because at the end of the day, Games Workshop is a business and indeed like any games company. And we can moan about it's all about money. But then if the company is not making money, you are not going to get any games because the company will go bankrupt. And it really was down to that there wasn't like, we got our sales reports, we knew what people wanted. Uh, there was always people moaning about squats, but nobody ever, ever, never, ever bought any of the models. So there was no sense making anymore. Uh, I believed I, I could have done the, the a Chaos Dwarf list that could have revitalized them and had somebody really get into making the, the model range to become a classic but once i left there was nobody who had any faith left in them i believe yeah it's funny because uh, there was so little love for chaos towards uh, back then um, and that's probably also the reason but uh, in the the communities here in denmark where we trade uh, figures chaos dwarfs is a uh, by far the most valuable uh, pieces and by far the most expensive ar- army to acquire. Yep, uh, low, uh, supply and demand. Yeah. So next, Jürgen has uh, some questions about uh, Morheim. Um, I think we are a little short on time, so maybe we can wrap it up a bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so the Morheim game, it uh, started in White Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Was it always meant to be released as a full game? Yes, but of course only if the community, White Wolf community, would give it thumbs up if there was excitement. It was always meant to be a box setter. And remember, it takes 12 to 18 months to produce a box game. So by the time we do the White Wolf articles, the, the, the production is already quite quite advanced. Now, it doesn't mean the game will get made. For example, Battlefleet Gothic was cancelled three times because the, the before Andy got it through to release, because the, the company didn't believe in it, and financially probably for good reasons, even though it's a classic game. Uh, the, the, uh, so yes, it was meant to be a box game, but of course, if everybody would have hated it, the White Dwarf articles, then it probably would have get cancelled. Okay, so where did the initial idea for Mordheim come from? Oh, it came from the year 2000 panic. So me and Rick were just, our hobby was, was, was reading the end of the world predictions. And of course, year 2000 was coming and they said that, oh, the, 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 the Mayan calendar is ending on 2000, so it's the end of the world. I went, what? And the, the, all the computers in the world are gonna tie because the, nobody knows it's the, 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 that they can't handle year 2001. Well, what? No. And, and of course, all these Christian doomsday cults and the, the all around the world, everybody was convinced that this is the end. And we were just going, what on earth? And then we thought, that, what if it was end of the world? And what if it happened in the Warhammer world? And we thought, okay, we can't destroy the Warhammer world, but maybe we can destroy portion of it. So the, the, then we thought, the, the, okay, a big rock, we want a skirmish game in Warhammer that's as fun as Necromunda. And the problem is that the, the normal medieval houses are rubbish for skirmish gaming because you can't place any models in them. But if you drop a huge meteorite in a city, you have all these cool ruins that you can the, the, uh, fight over and suddenly it becomes super good skirmish terrain. And it was a combination of the real world silliness and our desire to have a skirmish setting that works with the, the uh, skirmish rules that created Mordheim. That's where my inspiration came from. Nice. So the Mordheim game was a major success. It's still played today, as you mentioned. Um, was this success what led you to get the chance to write uh, Warhammer 6th edition as well? Or was it that already planned? That was already planned. I was at that point already head of the game design for Warhammer and, and 6th edition was coming and by default, because my position was to lead the Warhammer team, was obviously going to be to write the next edition. Okay, so uh, looking back at Mordheim, what is the one thing, rules-wise, that you would uh, change about it? Um, 
one thing, this is very minute, but slings, like I, we did, nobody picked slings in Warhammer, but in, in, in Mordheim, because they are cheap and the, the uh, plentiful and suit the short range and high mobility and verticality of the gameplay, the, the having a huge number of slingers is unbalancing and boring, so I would have changed that. That or the fighting with two weapons, because it because it was part of it was supposed to act as a gate to the fifth edition. I could not uh, change the rules too much. So if I learn in Mordheim that there is different rules for slings in Mordheim as opposed to Warhammer fifth edition, that would have been bad because the people moving to fifth edition from Mordheim would have been upset. Uh, but if I could have written the rules separately, I think one of those two things I would have changed. Okay, um, so um, Belakor, or mm. I may be pronouncing it wrong, was he meant to be the Shadow Lord all along, or was it uh, something else you had in mind from the beginning? Kinda. He was always supposed to be the rebel, um, the, the Chaos uh, uh, demigod, who came down on Earth to bring the end of the world, and that idea was taken by the Games Workshop and then made into Belacor and tied to it the background of Archaean, another character I created, which is kind of interesting to see your creations to take a life of their own. He was not supposed to be Belacor exactly as he is now, because at that point I wanted to keep him very mysterious and forbidding and unknown, sort of a Cthulhu-like creature, creature. So I hadn't detailed his full history yet. I was actually, the way I tied it to the history was also that the uh, Bloodborne Castain, when he cast this great spell of tomb, doom to start Vampire Wars, the warp stone he got in order to have enough power to do that came from Mordheim, and that's why there are undead in Mordheim. Okay. So, uh, given the advances in today's skirmish games, what would you change if you were to do a Mordheim? 2.0 yeah i mean it would be there is so much has changed i would do a, a alternating activation system for sure uh based on a initiative or whatnot it's the, the so the, the you get more dynamism um uh that would be probably the single biggest i would uh, the the streamline the the melee and the missile rules try to get a maybe get a dice roll or or two out of the way. I would have a more rules that just modify the number of dice you roll instead of pluses and minuses. Uh, and armor would be overhauled, so you wouldn't have to remember the the, the, the modifiers to it. They're just off the top of my head. A lot of has changed. Mordheim is a game from year 2000, and it's 2021 now. So a lot has changed. I'm just remarkable that it's still going so strong, even though it is, of course, a in some ways, old-fashioned system. Perhaps it's part of its charm, too. Yeah, uh, that was my next question, actually. Why do you think there's so much uh, support even after so long? Because there is no other game like it. It's the, it started the fantasy city skirmish genre. I mean, there is like a, a uh, Frostgrave is obviously a direct homage in many ways, but the I think the biggest thing is that there is no other game that looks like Mordheim, like the fighting over the ruined city. Whenever you see it, and that in any conventions or in battle reports, people say, wow, what is that? I've never seen anything like that. And of course, the incredible iconic artwork that John Blanche and the art team created for Mordheim, that there has never, ever been anything with the... the it was the last hurrah of the artist, uh, the craftsman artist at Games Workshop, uh, where everything was handmade, every single thing. And I think it really shows, like there is again, the book is like no other. It's, it's, it's. I'm super proud of the the, the influence it's had on the the future generations of the game designers that mentioned it to me. Yeah. So uh, going in, into sixth edition a bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sixth edition moved on to give more importance to uh, rank and file models, yeah. as well as limiting powerful units. Yeah. Uh, what was the thought process of this? Uh, it was partly business. We wanted to sell more models, which the, the, there was no point doing all the model ranges if nobody bought them and they only had a few. Uh, and partly it was that the 
Drake and I, we loved our big regiments and units and lines of archers. We loved the, the, the sort of the, 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 the uh, cavalcade aspects of the, the, the big armies. It's the feeling that the, I'm like fighting the, the Battle of Pelennor fields. But then if the other guy's army consists of five Chaos Knights uh, and a two mega powerful characters, that's not an army. That's just a cheese fest. Um, so we wanted to bring it back to the, the spectacle of war game, uh, which of course you could argue that maybe it's much easier to get into the game if you only need 10 models, but the, the, it wasn't the vision of the game. So, uh, And we did not like the feeling that the if a regiment meets a character, it's foregone conclusion, the character will always win. And we just thought, now come on, it's I painted all this stuff. There is this cool musician. I named the champion, and they can't. They have no hope against the character. That's not right. Yeah, you introduced uh, core units and uh, limitations in the game. Yeah. Uh, did you think that the limits, as you made them, uh, I mean, at least two core units, or would it have been better to use? a percentage-based system as they did later on? Um, I think it was the right choice for the time. And if you look at how much support 6th edition still has, I mean, it was in many ways the high watermark for Warhammer. It's the, the um, popularity-wise and whatnot. Uh, I'm obviously the most biased person in the world. You have to take <laughs> yeah. account it's the, the, when it comes to 6th edition. But I am not sure if the 7th and 8th edition went in the right direction, which eventually led to the death of the classic Warhammer. And you look at the, the like in the Facebook group of the 6th edition, it's the, you could argue that, well, uh, did it work out? Maybe it didn't. But again, I am the world's most biased person when it comes to 6th edition. You can't, you can't ask me for objective opinion. You shouldn't. Okay, um, you uh, made Ravening Hordes with uh, Alessio. Did you? Uh, it, it, a lot of people still play Sixth Edition just using Ravening Hordes. Yeah. Um, it feels better balanced. Did you play test it a lot, or was it more your experience of the game? So we we play this a lot, but the the really the reason why it's balanced is that the, the it it took two weeks to write the first draft which was like the pretty much bulk of the units and characters. And you could look at their stats and co uh, point costs and their all their items all at once. I could lay down everything on a table and look at them and compare the stats and make adjustments at once, which you can't do when you're releasing an army book after army book because you're so, there is so, so much work to make an army book. You can't spend, you can't afford to take the time to balance it against every other army. You just don't have the time. The release schedule doesn't allow it. Ravening Horde was the one point in time where we could step back, look at the entire range, and bring as much equality and balance into the army list as we could. And the, the short time frame helped us because it made us to do hard choices. Yeah. Um, you made a bit of progress of the lore, the Warhammer history, by. Mm -hmm especially by introducing Archaeon. Um, may I ask you about your thoughts about the end times? Well, a Warhammer world is super dear to me. So, But I guess that if you have to destroy the Warhammer world, at least it was one of my characters. Like, the, the, if you're going to do it, it's the at least I get to call the dibs. It's the on the way it happened. Uh, of course, I set that up when I wrote the Archaeon's background, that he was going to be the one that brings the the doom, the end, but I didn't at that point think because, hey, Warhammer was still a gigantic part of the, or the, the Games Workshop revenue stream that nobody in their right mind would destroy the old world. Um, but as we are seeing with the Total War Warhammer and now the, the, the rumblings of the Warhammer Classic, I think there is still demand to the classic Warhammer world. Let's see what happens. So if you had a chance to progress the lore instead, where would you have taken it? I would have had some major the, the shake-up. Maybe have like a fifth chaos power to emerge and establish itself in the, the, the world and fight the others. Or maybe bring the, 
the, the lungs of Inja and Cathay more into the mix or the, the uh, maybe have the another time of free emperors at the empire, anything to sort of make a feel that cost the world, real world history is in con continuous motion. So the, the uh, but of course in a miniature war game you kind of need to, you can't destroy Bretonnia if you want people to play Bretonian armies. So it's the, the, I would have tried to find a way to allow people to keep their models and still refresh the history. It's the, the, an empire is central to the Warhammer world. It's also funny, it's the one game where the Germans get to be the good guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. All right, well, I think that's um, most of the questions we, uh, we have for today. Okay. Um, but uh, we wanted to just take a few minutes here at the end to ask if do you have any questions for us? Yeah, I mean the the what brought you guys into like the the why there is several editions of Warhammer and the one could argue there is maybe more support for the eighth or the sixth edition. It's the the uh, why did you pick fifth edition? Was it the the whimsical art style or the books or why it it was a quite interesting choice. Yeah, mostly uh, I think it's uh, because nostalgia and uh, it was when, when we were kids and uh, I stopped playing at 6th edition. Um, I felt like a 6th edition, I, I really loved the powerful characters and uh, and I think 6th uh, edition was uh, was a bit limited. Uh, I, I did never tried the uh, Ravening Hordes, but uh, with the, the you had to, to pick uh, the core units and uh, the elite units and very few magic items uh, options and the thing I love about the uh, hero hammer is uh, all the item choices and the different uh, uh, things that you can do with the characters uh, in different ways so we just really love that uh, that feel of it and uh, we like uh, having a uh, powerful characters that can uh, smash everything and um, of course we like to to uh, deny the characters with black gem and stuff like that, but that's mainly, yep. mostly nostalgia. But also, uh, I think uh, it appeals to to me at least uh, more uh, in a tactical way. Um, but that's just a preference, I think. Yep, yeah, and I don't. There is nothing wrong with that. I mean, hey, I I was my heyday as a competitive player was on fifth, so the the, the I loved all that. It's the, the and I think it's I think it's good that there is variety. So the the cause one good thing about games is that once they are made, you can go back to them and play. It. What about you, Jürgen? Uh, for me, it's the style. Mm. I like the cartoonish style. It reminds me of my early days, so it's nostalgia as well. Mm. But having said that, um, I also really like the. Uh, magic face with mm. the winds of magic cards oh i love magic yeah and uh, i think um, uh, whenever i do pickup games i prefer playing sixth edition because as you said it's a lot better balanced but when we don't care about balance and just want to have crazy fun i, I always go for fifth edition yeah. and uh, we uh, we talk a lot about uh, how we want the games to be mm. and uh, even use special rules. Uh, did yeah. you use any special rules when you were playing 5th edition? Uh, yes, when I was not competing. Like the, the, I always wrote for my gaming group a special scenario to play, which was always super fun. And I love the 5th edition magic box. Well, 4th edition, really. It's the 4th and 5th. Uh, but the problem there was the... the we wanted when you buy the box set you'd get everything and we just could not fit the magic card system into the box but i i love the, the, the sort of the meta game of the of the of the fourth magic okay yeah well uh, we also have uh, added some house rules to our own that we we, we uh, when we make our armies uh, basically, we, we limit our character points by first producing a 1,500-point army uh, yes. using normal restrictions and then adding 500 points worth of regiments. Cool. Yeah, Sounds and fun. also we don't allow fourth-level wizards. Mm. 
well, that, that again, it's what it shows the flexibility. It's the, the one of the glorious things about the Warhammer compared to more rigid games is that you can treat it almost like an RPG with lots of home rule, or you can play with some limitations. It's the competitive games. It's the, I think that's one of the, the lasting, the, the endearing qualities why this rather archaic game, like this is the game that the, like the ancient uh, Strategos of the, the ancient Greece played with wooden PCs. It's the, uh, that is somehow survived into our digital age, this very, very archaic time of, uh, type of playing games. It's the, the, I, I think it's really great that the miniature war gaming A, still exists, and B, is actually going better, stronger than ever. Yeah, you're yeah, seeing that with the um, coming release, or at least within the next couple of years, of the, uh, the Warhammer the Old World. Mm. Mm. But um, do you still play uh, board games today? Do you have time for it? All, all the time. It's the I played with my family. I played with my friends, and the indeed I am designing just for the sort of a as a service to community a uh, a, a uh, miniature war game as we speak. That's the the, the I am I am all, well, quite soon the the first free digital version will be available. I mean the rule set will be digital, so you can download it for free. Okay, okay. Any in particular that's your favorite at the moment? At the moment, on purely as a board games, it's the what have I been playing a lot? It's the Everdale. I mean that's a board game, board game, not a miniature game, but the I played that quite a few games of that. Okay. Well, I think that's uh, yeah, that's everything we have for today. Any other Excellent. questions you have for us before we uh, we round out? No, I'm just a shout out to all your listeners then. It's been super fun to do this. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and to everyone for listening in. Mm. Um, anything you want to plug here at the end? Uh, it's the, if you want to find me out, it's the, the on Facebook, it's Thomas Piren and Brutal Deluxe Game Design, it's the I'll post updates on what I'm up to there and the, the a lot of, or the, the uh, Warhammer fans have Sent there, so the, the, you are welcome to to contact me there and the, the see what cookie stuff I'm coming up with. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for for joining us. It was uh, really great that you had the time and uh, you still are, are passionate for the Warhammer universe. Mm. Oh, it's been huge pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you, Thomas. We really, really appreciate this. Okay, send me a link once this is ready, so I can puff it to my fans. Sure, will do. Okay. And uh, you can find us at the Flail Skulls podcast community, or you can find our Facebook page as well. Check it out there, and there you will find a link to our uh, all our podcasts and as well this interview. So um, take care, everyone, and bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.